This is episode 171 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported each week by listeners just like you who shop in our store, donate to the show, or sign up to become a member where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare with digital activity kits that let you try out some of the history you learn about here on the show. Be a part of continuing the legacy of William Shakespeare at CassidyCash.com. Hi, I'm Anthony Bale. I'm Professor of Medieval Studies at Birkbeck College in the University of London, and I was one of the academic advisors for the Jews Money Myth exhibition at the Jewish Museum London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. When the French are losing, she calls on her demons to help her. His Joan is kind of, uh, which I think is typical of Shakespeare and why he's so great. But there are moments where she is impressive in the play as well. And so I think absolutely she may see Pucelle as being pure, but puzzle is a great term for how the English thought about Joan. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Henry VI, Part One, William Shakespeare presents one of history's most famous characters, a woman named Joan la Pucelle, known today as Joan of Arc. For the French, she was a truly holy woman, chaste and pure. She was also a brilliant military strategist and a force to be reckoned with in battle. Nicknamed the Maid of Orleans, the real Joan of Arc was a heroine for France during the Hundred Years' War and would be canonized as a saint. The depiction of Joan la Pucelle in Shakespeare's play is an intriguing investigation because as Shakespeare was depicting this famous heroine in the 16th century stage, the Hundred Years' War would have been recent history for the audience. And at the time it was presented, England was not friends with France. In the play, Shakespeare leaves us a pile of cultural realities to unpack with his depiction of Joan La Pucelle, not only with her overt military leadership in a society where women were not called upon to lead armies, but she's also involved in the occult, consulting demons prior to battle, and she claims she's both pregnant as well as a virgin during her trial. Our guest this week, Carol Levin, is an expert in the history of Jean-Luc Poussel and the depiction of her for Shakespeare's lifetime. She joins us today to explore false pregnancy claims in early modern England and to compare the real history of Joan of Arc with Shakespeare's fictional presentation of her. Carol Levin is a Willa Catha Professor of History at the University of Nebraska, where she specializes in early modern English cultural and women's history. She is the author and editor of 19 books, including The Heart and Stomach of a King, Elizabeth I, and the Politics of Sex and Power, and the co-authored with John Watkins, Shakespeare's Foreign Worlds. She is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and was a Fulbright Scholar at the University of New York in 2015. She is also the author of the one-woman, one-act play, Elizabeth I, in her own words, most recently performed at the 2019 United Solo Theater Festival in New York City. Her current research projects focus on royal women during the late medieval and early modern England periods, and you can find out more about Carol in the show notes for today's episode. 
Hello, Carol. Welcome back to the show. Glad to have you here again. I am so thrilled to be back. I love this show. So thank you. Why does Shakespeare call her Jean La Pucelle instead of Joan of Arc, which is how we know her today? Well, Joan La Pucelle was actually Joan's own way of describing herself. And La Pucelle meant virgin or pure. So she's describing herself as a pure woman, which was very important in terms of her concept of herself, but also in terms of what she needed to accomplish. Were women typically invited to fight and lead armies in Europe during the 14th and 15th centuries? I mean, how did Joan La Pucelle get in this position in the first place? No, that it was very difficult for her and I think shows her bravery, her her stick-to-itness. Um, Joan was a peasant uh, girl from this small town. And from the time she was a child, she had, was hearing the voices of St. Michael, uh, the Archangel, St. Catherine of Alexandria, who was a young woman who debated 50 learned pagan theologians and won and then was executed, and St. Margaret of Antioch, another virgin saint who stood up to those in power and who was executed. She saw them, but she especially talked about their voices and what they told her. And they told her that it was her duty to save France. Uh, Much of France was under the control of the English at this part of the Hundred Years' War, including Paris. And so uh, when she was about 16 in 1428, she actually convinced her parents to let her go visit a cousin who lived near a castle where there was a soldier in command. And she went to him to ask him to send her to the Dauphin Charles, who was in Chinon, because she wanted to go to him so she could tell him what her voices had told her. The commander, Baudricourt, just first laughed at her and then was very angry. He told her cousin he should take her home and, and whip her for her behavior. Joan went home, and then in 1429, the city of Orléans was under siege, and her voices told her it was imperative she do this. She went back, and she actually managed, and again, this is a 17-year-old peasant girl, she managed to convince Baudricourt to give her the escort, at which point she cut off her hair, dressed in male garb, and had a sword. She was such a commanding presence. The escort at first was very cynical. And by the time they got her to Chinon, about nine days later, they were all totally on her side. I mentioned Joan called herself La Pucelle, and that was very important. So Charles heard she was coming, and he decided to do a little trap and see if she really did have the voices of the saints and the angels. So he put another person on the throne and he stood with the crowd when Joan was brought in and Joan went right to the true Dauphin and said, why are you trying to trick me? Pretty impressive. Now, maybe she heard a description of what Charles looked like. Maybe it was her voices. How can we know? But they talked and Charles was desperate. He also then had Joan examined by a board of matrons to prove she really was a virgin. And when that was proved, he then gave her the army and she relieved the siege of Orléans, which was overwhelming in terms of the morale for the French. She then led Charles to Reims, where the Dauphin was then crowned King of France. So it was remarkable 
for her to be leading an army. Absolutely remarkable. And she had great support of the French people while she was doing this. Not quite as much support unexpectedly from Charles, because she then said, well, let's take Paris next. He didn't think he had the army to do it. I think he was tired of her kind of always telling him what to do. And he refused. Joan did not then attempt to take Paris, but when she heard another town in France was being besieged, she secretly stole away with um, some soldiers to try to relieve it. And it was there that she was captured by the Burgundians. The Duke of Burgundy was in alliance with the English and they captured Joan. She was then about 18, maybe just turned 19. So she was this successful military leader for France, it sounds like. Absolutely. And beloved by the people of France. If she was successful, why was she vilified to the point of being executed? Well, of course, she's the French adore her, but the English are horrified by her and they control a lot of France. And there's Joan with her voices. And their view of it is those are not the voices of the angels and saints. Those are the voices of demons. And so when Joan the Burgundians then actually sell her to the English and Charles, and I think this is pretty shameful, the French king and his court do nothing to try to save her. She is then taken to Rouen, which was the head of where the English controlled in Normandy, and she was put on trial. She was not seen as a prisoner of war. She was put on trial for heresy, for blasphemy, for being a sorceress. And the big charges against her were first the blasphemy of her wearing male clothing, and then that she heard the voices of demons. What was France's response to her death? I mean, in Shakespeare's version of her story, Charles, the King of France, gets so angry that he threatens England over the treatment of Joan, which makes it sound like he was defensive of her and upset at how they were treating her. But what you're telling me suggests that Charles wasn't necessarily friendly with Joan or didn't didn't really care what happened to her. It's very interesting. So she's put on trial and there she is, this young woman all by herself. And at first she stands firm and then they take her to where she would be burned. And she actually and frankly, who can blame her? She's so afraid she recants and she says, I was wrong to wear male clothing. You're right. These are not the voices of the angels and saints. She is then supposed to be just kept in prison, but the Duke of Bedford is horrified. He wants her dead, which I think actually was a huge mistake, but that's his view. And there are a lot of questions about why, but Joan does then resume male clothing, tear up her recantation. And then in 1431, she is burned at the stake. Charles doesn't do much about it till 25 years later. When the Hundred Years' War is finally over, then he calls a new trial to have her character rehabilitated. But he's just not, you know, he's not very interested in supporting Joan while she's alive. After once she's been captured, he figures her value to him is gone. 
In Henry VI, part one, the character Talbot uses the phrase Pucelle or puzzle, act one, scene four. The same character later accuses Joan of being a witch. Talbot calls attention to how similar the words sound in spoken English. But Carol, is he also calling attention to the kind of enigma presented by Joan herself? Were the English of Shakespeare's lifetime uncertain whether to consider Joan a good asset or a dangerous sorceress? I think that's such a wonderful question, Cassidy. The English, of course, had been fighting the French for centuries. And then, of course, the Hundred Years' War, which went on for more than 100 years. So certainly there were many of the English who thought if the French had defeated them, they must have needed demonic help. But there were also some who actually thought of Joan as a very impressive young woman. The earlier history chronicles actually describe Joan as demonic, as being a shrew, as and actually claim that she had had a number of love affairs, that she actually was pregnant at the time she was burned. And this is something that Shakespeare absolutely picks up on. But also, even though uh, when the French are losing, she calls on her demons to help her, his Joan is kind of, uh, which I think is typical of Shakespeare and why he's so great, but there are moments where she is impressive in the play as well. And so I think absolutely she may see Pucelle as being pure, but puzzle is a great term for how the English thought about Joan. And you know, in the play at the end, she does. At first, she says, you can't burn me. I'm a virgin. And they say, oh, that doesn't matter. And so she does say, you can't burn me. I'm pregnant. And it was true in England at the time that women who were found guilty of capital crimes, if they could show they were pregnant, they were not burned during their pregnancy and some of them were simply not executed. In the play, the characters don't care. And she is, after naming all these different uh, men as her potential father of her son, she is taken away and burned. But in the early 17th century, when there was a great deal of writing against women saying uh, that women were slothful, women were immoral, women had no intellect. In the early 17th century, a number, several authors wrote saying that's not true and we'll give you examples. And even though they were English, a number of them, one of their examples was Joan of Arc. So I think that's a really fascinating aspect of this as well. As you mentioned in Shakespeare's version of Joan of Arc's death, the play has Joan of Arc try to avoid execution by first claiming she's a virgin and then she claims to be pregnant. There are numerous cases of women in this time period in England being spared the death penalty because they claim pregnancy. But Carol, yeah. was this actually what happened to the real Joan of Arc? Did she claim pregnancy as she was facing execution? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The only way you could see it as a comparison is her momentarily when she recants and claims that she was wrong to call St. Michael and St. Margaret and St. Catherine, that they were not angels and saints. As I said, in a sense, that's a parallel to the claim of being pregnant, perhaps, but absolutely not. I will say, however, that apparently, and some of this information comes in the uh, trial 25 years later, the rehabilitation, but it does seem quite possible that at the end, when Joan had assumed female clothing and she was guarded by these English guards, she may well have been gang raped. 
And that was one of the things they did to break her spirit. Uh, Marina Warner talks about that. Other, I think that's very possible. If you look at the evidence, we can't know for sure. But I do think that suggests, ironically enough, maybe she was pregnant when she was burned, but we could never know. After being captured by the Burgundians, Joan was placed, as you say, on trial where she was ultimately executed. But in Shakespeare's version of her, of her life, this execution was being burned at the stake by the English. That punishment is traditionally held for witches in Shakespeare's lifetime. Carol, is this death scene accurate to history? Was the real Joan of Arc burned at the stake? The real Joan of Arc absolutely was burned at the stake. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But I will just add in England, as opposed to the continent, witches were hung. They were not burned. The only witches who were burned in England, according to their laws, were women who used witchcraft to murder their husbands. And that was seen as such a horrific crime. They were burned instead of hanged. But otherwise, witches were hung, which is really interesting because our Our sort of view of which is as always they were burned at the stake. And this was true on the continent. But both in England and in Salem, they were hung, not burned. Joan was burned because that was also the traditional punishment in England and all over Europe for heretics. And that's what she was found, that she was a relapsed heretic, that she had recanted burned her recantation, destroyed her recantation, and as a result, she would be burned at the stake. And that, of course, is one of the most painful deaths that could possibly happen. She was burned to death, and the executioner said afterwards, basically, woe to me, because I have burned a saint. And so certainly, even some of the English at the time of her execution were horrified by what happened. I will add that while in a kind of a popular sense, people thought of her as a saint, she was not actually canonized as a saint until 1920, right after World War I. So that was hundreds of years after her death in 1431. I know we would love to explore the life of Jean-Luc Poussel further and to understand the overlap here between not just her history, but Shakespeare's history and how they understood the story of her life, which was much closer in proximity to Shakespeare than it is to us today. What are some resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, I love talking about Joan and I love recommending things to read about her. And I think Marina Warner's book, Joan of Arc, The Image of female heroism is a really amazing book, not only about Joan's life, but about her afterlife. Helen Castor, who does wonderful books on women and uh, on queens, also did a great, great study of Joan of Arc. Gail Orgelfinger did a very fine book called Joan of Arc in the English Imagination, 1429 to 1829, which certainly deals with Shakespeare. And I would also add that her the transcripts of both her her first trial and then the rehabilitation are translated into English and are published, uh, edited by Emilia Sanguieff. So there's lots of material on Joan. Shakespeare's portrayal of Joan is just fascinating, but there's also, of course, George Bernard Shaw's play, St. Joan, And then Carolyn Gage's play, The Second Coming of Joan of Arc, which is another very different view of Joan. So there's much that uh, your audience can certainly 
look at. And she is just absolutely fascinating. I'm convinced she's much more intricate than I think I had realized. We look at her kind of as Joan of Arc, the saint who was burned at the stake, but there's a fabulous story to be told there for sure. And we'll link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode so you can check out these books as well as the plays that Carol mentions today. Now, Carol, as you know, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me (laughs) I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. And because you're a repeat guest, you can choose a different book if you prefer than you did the last time you were with us. (laughs) Well, as usual, it's like, I can't just take one book. I have to have many books. My apartment, I have to tell you, despite having so many bookshelves, I have books piled up all over the floor. I have so many books. So one that I think is absolutely remarkable is Keith Thomas's study, Religion and the Decline of Magic, which talks about changing belief systems in late medieval, early England. He did so much research. There's so much fascinating material in it. That's a great book. But if I can also just uh, for a moment shine the light on a project of mine, I'd like to talk about two other books. And I, with my wonderful colleague, Marguerite Tossi, I edit for Rutledge a new series on early modern kind of new approaches to early modern cultural studies. And we have two books coming out this fall that both have to do with Shakespeare. And I think people on desert islands and people right in their own homes would find fascinating. So I just wanted to mention one of them is by Christina Gutierrez-Denahy, and it's Kingship, Madness, and Masculinity on the Early Modern Stage and has some wonderful, amazing essays in there. And I must confess, I have an essay in there myself on... uh, Leontes and Macbeth. And the other one, which I think is just remarkable too, is by Joe Eldridge Carney, and it's called Women Talk Back to Shakespeare, Contemporary Adaptations and Appropriations. And she looks at about five or six of Shakespeare's plays and then at very modern novels and plays that have been written in response to them. And they're both, I've read both of the books in manuscript. I'm so proud and they'll both be out this fall. Those are excellent. We'll look forward to seeing those published. Thank you so much, Carol Levin, for being here this week and taking us through the history of Joan LaPoussel. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I just want to say again, what a pleasure it is and how wonderful I think your podcast is. And I'd be happy to come as a guest anytime because what you do is so great. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. To dive even deeper into the life of Jean-Luc Poussel and see some images of her, as well as some bonus history around the character from Shakespeare's Henry VI, you want to stop by the show notes for today's episode. We always pack bonus history over there with resources mentioned from the show, as well as free illustrated guides about the life of William Shakespeare that you can download for free. So make sure you hop over to the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 171. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 171. 
If you love listening to our show here each week and you are just a huge fan of William Shakespeare that would like to try out some of the history you learn about on the show for yourself, like games, recipes, or crafts that he would have had in his lifetime, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members not only support the work we do here and help us keep the show on the air, but they also get access to our activity kits. We have card games, board games, cooking demonstrations, calligraphy kits, all kinds of things from the life of William Shakespeare that you can follow along with and complete right at home with items you can purchase online or at your local market or store. And some of the things you probably already have right in your kitchen or laundry room. Plus, members also get access to our printable worksheets, lesson plans, coloring pages, and more. It really is the best little Shakespeare club ever. Find out more and sign up to become a member today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.